This is John Holmes from Sky Sports, and you're listening to Level Playing Field. Welcome, John, to my podcast. Thanks, Randy. It's uh, great to chat to you. It is. It is finally nice to speak over the phone, considering we've been talking a while via Twitter and everything like that. Yeah, it is. It's really, really nice. Obviously, you've um, had great success with the podcast, and I've been uh, an avid listener in uh, recent weeks and months. So um, it's nice to have a chat to you myself. The way I start my podcast is I always ask for the earliest childhood memory you have, just to sort of start the timeline and and start talking about yourself. Wow. I have listened to a few of these, so um, can I remember? So my... My earliest memory was probably um, I remember I remember reading for my for my gran um, or, or my grannies as we tend to call them over. I'm not sure if you have the same. Um, and that was that was a thing that I just have a, a memory of it. Essentially, we were like at home, and there was this. Um, <laughs> I remember my mum being surprised for some reason that I could read relatively well at a, at a very young age. And so I remember her sort of, for some reason, kind of creating this kind of performance at home where I was reading um, a book, I think, called um, The... It was called The, the Little Red Hen. It was like a kind of children's nursery rhyme, like a nursery story. And I remember reading it aloud for my nan and there being a bit of a consternation in the, in the household that I, I was able to read the whole book at a relatively young age. I think I was only about three or four um so that's for me is for some reason the like the earliest memory that sticks in my mind (laughs) it makes sense for sure i mean reading for your gran would be a big deal yeah so that was um i I do i'm used to well certainly when i was younger growing up and uh, what have you i did a lot of kind of amateur dramatics and plays and theatre and things like that. So anything that I think that kind of where I'm stuck in front of other people, I do tend to remember. Were you more involved in theatre stuff then than sports or was it sort of a mutual experience? No, I was, I was more involved in, in theatre and anything artsy than I was sports. Sports for me, I was relative, I was a late bloomer, which is, uh, my dad was, was crazy about cricket. Um, absolutely cricket mad um you know uh, played cricket when he was when he was younger would go and watch cricket i i showed no sporting prowess <laughs> whatsoever <laughs> when i when i was growing up and it became pretty clear that sport was not going to be my thing so i think they just kind of my parents kind of encouraged me to read and and kind of do a sort of cultural and artistic kind of things more and that was that was kind of yeah my how my childhood developed and then really it was it wasn't until I got to like my mid-teens that I just fell into football in a huge way and it just became like just a real passion of mine and everything sports-wise has tumbled out from that from when I when I really got into football and I was probably about like 50 14 15. What brought you to to football? Do you remember? Because I went to what's known over here as a, a public school which is probably in Canada uh, sorry in the, in the States probably more um, as a private school um, but pu- public schools are obviously a big thing over here in, in, in the UK and um, and there wasn't football or soccer wasn't played at my school um, to any certainly to any level it was all about the um, 
you know, the, the key sports throughout the year, which were rugby in the winter, hockey in the spring and cricket in the summer. Um, so there wasn't any kind of um, any encouragement in, in getting into football or playing football. But one of my friends um, who I was really, really close with was had always been a mad Arsenal fan. Um, ever since I'd known him and uh, and just kind of just through being friends with him it really kind of and see how passionate he was about the game and learning more about the game and, and all the kind of different uh, yeah I mean although being obviously in, in England you can't avoid football and even if you go to like as I say a posh school um, you're kind of it's part of the culture it's, it's everywhere but to, to get into the game to the level that he was was something that he kind of like fostered in me and and, and we would uh, we would talk, talk endlessly and uh, about about the game, and, and that's kind of just how it developed for me. So um, I was at that stage where I needed to kind of choose a team to support. Um, he was he was an Arsenal fan th- for family reasons, going back years and years. So I wanted to support a team that was more local to where I lived, which was down in the southwest. So for some stupid reason, I supported Plymouth, um, who are not uh, a successful team in the way that Arsenal have been. And uh, and that proved to be um, sort of my my kind of avenue into supporting um, a team. So that's uh, that's kind of how things snowballed from there. What level is Plymouth now this season? Oh, Randy, it's been bleak. Um, so we've been relegated again uh, after a, just the most ridiculous end to last season, whereby we were very, we were looking safe in mid-table, um, but somehow conspired to get ourselves relegated again. So now we're back in what's called League Two, but it's actually Division Four, or you know, the fourth level of, of English football. So it's um, it's going to be another long, hard road to get to where we feel we should be, which would probably be um, sort of Championship League One, so Div Two, Div Three sort of level. That's where I think we feel we should be as a club. Uh, but it's it's pretty depressing. <laughs> <laughs> well, as an American, usually I think most Americans tend to go towards you know the big five or six clubs in the Premier League. Well, I yes. obviously am different and found Crystal Palace as my club. So Palace are a great club. So my my great uncle um, was a Palace fan. I used to go to games with him now and again. Um, and yeah, so I'm, a, I'm, I'm. I think it's fantastic that you're a Palace fan and you haven't latched onto one of the big six. Yeah, it, because I, I watched football for years, but until I found Palace, I never really watched it every week. You know, so mm. I found and the fact late. and the fact they're in the Premier League now helps, obviously. So you get to see more of it than if they were still in the Championship. Oh yeah, and we get some. I think ESPN covers some Championship matches. Um, once one yeah. game a week or something like that, but oh, that's good. That's good. I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's um, some, there's some really there's some really big clubs in the championship. That's the thing. I mean, Leeds obviously have been in the championship for years. One of this country's biggest clubs. So, um, and Villa, Villa have just come up again. But yeah, I mean, there's you look at some of the clubs in the championship, and there's there huge clubs in there. So I think it's good that 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 league gets quite a lot of worldwide exposure as well. Because and the standard and the excitement of the league is really high. Oh yeah, and English football just continues to grow in popularity over here. Yeah, it's such a great product. So it's great that more people around the world can see it. When you are a teen, usually teenagers, uh, sexuality becomes the part of every teen's life. Um, whether you're straight, gay, however you identify, how did it? How did it happen for you? How? When did you start to realize that you might be not the norm, as people say? Um, I think I probably 
sort of had an inkling that I was that I was different. Maybe about the same time I got into football, which is might explain a lot as to how I've struggled, how I struggled with my sexuality so much, probably when I was younger. Um, so yeah, so it would have been that kind of sort of awakening time that most um, young people have, probably when they're in their in their kind of mid teens. Uh, well, that's for me. I, know, I guess it's different for, for lots lots of people, but. Um, I think sort of the school where I was at and the environment I was in and what have you, it was just there was just no no acceptance really. There was no suggestion that anybody who who was known to be gay or, or bi or, or, or what have you um, would have been accepted. There was no outward signs of of, of of tolerance. I mean, we were very much in this in the throes here of you know Section Twenty Eight, um, which had come into into law at the end of the eighties. And the the legacy of the AIDS crisis, you know, became uppermost in people's thoughts whenever they spoke about anything to do with actually what with is that? That was a Margaret Thatcher thing, right? Yeah. So Section Twenty Eight was um, a law that was introduced by the Conservative government at the time, which essentially was um, it was kind of in reaction to the burgeoning kind of gay rights movement that that was springing up in in the eighties. Uh, and the idea of it was that um, the idea of the law was that you wouldn't promote, uh, as they would call it, promote homosexuality in schools. So it created a climate whereby teachers felt they couldn't even discuss um, such a matter. For example, if a pupil came to them and and wanted to kind of for some guidance, it created this kind of culture of fear around even mentioning the topic. And 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 they introduced it through some crazy um, idea that it would protect children, um, that they would kind of protect them from this slightly unknown um, movement that was that was growing pace whereby people were becoming more conscious of, of sexuality and, and, and what have you. So they felt like they wanted to protect children. It's very similar in a way to what Russia has now, the propaganda law they have in, in Russia. But this was this was very much under the auspices of trying to protect children. But it just it just created this awful climate and culture of, of fear and um, and as much in, in in teachers as it did in pupils. So like nobody would would feel that they could even d- discuss the topic. And, and and local authorities as well were affected. So councils or you know they would they they might for example have an application would be submitted to, for some kind of event that had uh, you know, an LGBT theme. I think even the acronym LGBT wasn't really sort of um, something that was ever used at the time. It was more about gay rights. Um, but obviously councils would would also be under the um, under the remit of section 28. So they would so they would decline those those applications and and these things just extend and this was the reason why stonewall the charity here in the uk that obviously takes the name from the riots um why stonewall was founded 30 years ago this year in 1989 it was a reaction to section 28 because they knew how poisonous and toxic this law was i take a lot from pop culture being an american kid in the 80s for me one show i i latched on to was already being served which obviously had mr humphreys who I don't think they ever declared him gay, but obviously he was played that way and he was played by a gay actor. But so it seems like you have stuff like that. And that's what government TV, right? Isn't BBC? Well, it's not government TV. It's um, it's it was, B, it was like public service broadcasting. So uh, I, I, it's not exactly it's not 
it's not exactly the state or the government has any say in the creation of, of it. It's just the um, the fact that everyone here in the UK has to pay it for a TV license to to be able oh. to watch. It, it's the way it's funded rather than the way it's created. Um, but yes, I, I, I obviously I grew up with sitcoms like Are You Being Served and that whole comedy culture that was that was around in the seventies and eighties was um camp characters characters that that you knew were gay but um it was never said it was a kind of a taboo but their mannerisms and the way they acted and the things they said very kind of sharp um you know caustic kind of tone of, of voice and and what have you all kind of combined to create these kind of familiar characters you would see in different sitcoms so not only are you being served with mr humphreys but um there were others that were, I can't remember. I can't remember which ones there were now, but there was pretty much always like a camp character in most of the sitcoms. I think uh, Ian Roberts was on your podcast recently, wasn't he? And he was talking yeah. about the Carry On films. Exactly. So, so the Carry On films were like famously kind of would have them. Um, Kenneth Williams, one of our great kind of British comedians from from yesteryears, uh, whose story was is is so sad because he was so tortured during his life. But um, they were always like a figure of fun. Um, and that was kind of what people's relationship were with, with gay people. It was just the people they saw on the TV that that it wasn't ever said that they were gay, but it was known that they were gay because they were these stereotypes of gay people. Well, yeah. And then like how um, like Luke Tufts, when I talked to him, he also brought up like George, Boy George with Culture Club and um, Elton John. So you're used to these type of, of performers because they were the artists. Yeah, that's right. So kind of queer culture, I guess, would, would have come through in, in the 80s through um, the kind of new romantic movement like Boy, Boy George and, and a lot of bands around, around that time. Um, Bronsky Beat. Um, so I don't know if you know Jimmy Somerville, but the song Small Town Boy, mm-hmm. which is obviously such a, a gay anthem now, uh, that, that was hugely groundbreaking like at the time. I remember the video... Uh, the video to that song, if your listeners uh, look it up on, on YouTube, it's basically like a, a mini film about a young guy, you know, who doesn't fit in in his hometown and gets beaten up and has to leave and flees on the train. It's just a, it, it just kind of shows like, the, yeah, the way that, you know, the creative world, arts and culture, these were the, the kind of the avenues in which people were able to express themselves because through Section 28 and 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 everything else that was going on around at that time, all of these things were kind of off topic um, for, for, for most people. So it was only you were only able to kind of express yourself through through arts, really. So then for you, you know, being a creative person and being that type of person growing up and then following or finding football, was it was it sort of confusing for you to be in one world and then stepping into another? Well, I just subsumed my sexuality for for a long time. It was like I, I always find it. It's familiar to me when I hear athletes and people in, in, in football, for example, you know, who talk about, well, you know, I'd, I, although I kind of knew that I was gay or I knew that I was different, it wasn't something that I gave a lot of thought to because I kind of just buried it deep within myself and, and focused on other things that I knew were more acceptable in society. So that's kind of like how I feel it happened for me as well. Um, you know, there was, there was no avenues to explore who I was. There was no... Um, as I say, no, no signs that, that anyone would, would, would want to have a conversation with me about this thing. And, and seeing all the, 
the hate that was out there and the discrimination, you know, the last thing you want to do is, is, is tell somebody something that they could use against you. So you just kind of bury it deep within yourself. So, yeah, so I focused all my energies on my school and schoolwork and, and my passion, my growing passion for football and, and sport. I went off to university, obviously, when I was when I was eighteen, and um, and and did very much the same. Um, so for me, it just became like a, a perpetuating narrative of, of kind of you know, putting my time and energy into other things and, and trying to bury the thing that I really didn't want to confront. Is sport what led you to journalism? Yes, yes. So I um I felt, as I say, I followed for football in a big way, sort of in my teens, and then I made up my mind that I wanted to be a football journalist. Um, so I got to got through my A levels, looking for universities to go to, and I had the good fortune of going to Liverpool on a midweek when Liverpool were playing at home. Um, it was a rearranged game. I always remember actually because it was they were due to play Newcastle, which is always a great fixture. Liverpool Newcastle, one of the famous kind of Premier League fixtures, because there's always great goals and great kind of drama and entertainment. They were due to play that game. It was on the day that, or the day after Princess Diana had died um, in, in, in the in accident in Paris. So that game had been uh, delayed through to um, early 1999. Um, this is when I was, no, no, that's not right. It was, uh, it was early 97, 97, 98. When was the car? It was 97, wasn't it? So we were Early 98, yeah, that's right. That's when I would have gone off to uni open day. Um, And my mum came with me. And fortunately, I think I just wrote to the club. And this is like the thing you can't really do now. I just wrote to the club and said, oh, is there any chance I can get two two tickets for the game? Because I see it's been rearranged. Um, (laughs) And fortunately, they, they must have just taken pity on me. But they said, yeah, yeah, you can have you can have two two tickets i suppose in those days it was probably a bit easier to get tickets for, for like high profile games perhaps so I managed to get these two two tickets and my mum was really really worried about it she was like oh god she'd never been to a game before it was a night game um yeah a city she's you know she's not like hugely confident about such things but i but obviously i couldn't pass up this opportunity and and i was still only like 17 at the time so like she had to come with me so i dragged her along and she absolutely loved it um, it was a you know fantastic atmosphere. She loved all the singing. It was something she'd only ever really seen on the TV before. Um, you know, forty thousand in the ground under the flood under the floodlights. Actually, it turned out it wasn't a great game. Michael Owen scored in the first half and it finished one one nil. But it was just the it was just being there. So after I'd gone to that and I'd gone to the open day, and it was a journalism degree at John Moores University, and um, it had gone really really well. So I'd made up my mind absolutely there and then that I wanted to go to Liverpool because I knew obviously that was the best football city pretty much in the whole of the country. And that was almost as important for me as it was about the course uh, to go to somewhere where I knew I could, you know, fulfill my, my passion for, for football in somewhere where like it's the lifeblood of the whole city. So, so that's what it was. And it really is a wild experience. I went to my first English football match last year with Crystal Palace. They played Arsenal and just, it was at Selhurst Park and, the singing, like you mentioned, the uh, just everything around you—it's just so wild. Yeah, and that's you know part of the product, really. I suppose people would say, but the the atmosphere that's that's generated in in, in our stadiums is what makes you know the game so so popular here. It's it, it's it's great, and going going to a ground like Anfield or St James's Park or. Uh, you know some of the kind of more famous kind of older grounds. I think uh, that I'm you know, also going 
going to uni in, in Liverpool meant I could, could go to Everton games now and again. And uh, Goodison Park is, you know, a stadium that I love in alongside Anfield because it's it's so historic and you really get that sense of history when you, you when you go there and it's it's, uh, it's it's fantastic. So yeah, any opportunity anyone ever gets to go to, I would say one of the kind of classic grounds in this country, um, which is sadly obviously dying out a bit now because the stadiums need to be renovated and new grounds need to to be built. But the atmosphere is is second to none, so it's good. So once you graduate from university, how do you get a, a job right out of school? Yeah, so whilst I was at uni, um, I'd done the usual sort of things like editor, sports editor of my student paper. And um, obviously, I was on a journalism degree course, so I had lots of opportunities to do sports journalism related stuff. Um, and through a friend, uh, I've been fortunate to get some work experience on a football website um, called Team Talk, which was kind of part of the burgeoning kind of dot com football scene it kind of sprung out of um something that had been going for years and years which was premium rate phone lines here in the uk mm-hmm. so they were kind of real money spinners something um again some of your listeners might have heard of something called club call uh team talk was kind of part of that and these were kind of like phone numbers that people would would ring up and then you would be able to get all the kind of gossip and news on your team uh through these premium rate phone lines um which you know it seems ridiculous to think now that somebody that, that somebody would phone up a number and pay 60 pence a minute or something stupid to to get sports news but this was in the days before the internet really um but but i kind of came towards the end of that phone line era and when they were moving more into so the website had been going for a, a few years and and i've been able to get work experience there and then when i finished uni they offered me a job out of university so i moved to leeds where they were based, um, and started working there. How long did you stay there? So I stayed in Leeds for a long time, actually. So over 10 years. So it wasn't until... So I, I moved in 2001, summer of 2001. And uh, I didn't leave until 2013. Uh, no, 2014. 2014, the summer of 2014. I, I, I so the company that I worked for, TeamTalk, went through various kind of management changes, Um the dot-com bubble sort of burst um, not not long after I'd started kind of a full-time job there, really. So I remember the 2002 World Cup um, in Japan, and we were covering that, obviously. And I remember there being, like, redundancies at the business at that time. And friends of mine kind of left. Um, fortunately, I somehow clung on to a job at, um, at the time, even though I was quite junior. I guess it was because I was cheap um, <laughs> and managed to kind of survive. And then the business kind of went through various ownership changes. Um, I kind of moved up to kind of an, an editorial role. Um, and Sky, uh, who I work for now, came along and bought the business um, towards the end of the decade, I think it was. I think it must have been about 2008 maybe 2008 2009 and we were kind of grouped together with some other sports websites called uh, you'll probably know football 365 mm-hmm. so um i know a, a lot of the um the team that work on that uh, or have worked on that down down the years uh, sporting life which is a big horse racing website here in the uk um and some other uh, websites that we were kind of packaged together with too so there was a short-lived attempt at starting up a sports radio station at team talk while i was there that kind of failed um so there was all it was all very much it was very kind of enterprising and entertaining 
because um, people, you know, were trying lots of new things, and and the industry was was changing quite rapidly and, and quickly, and not everything went went well, but some things did, and you, you, yeah, it was it was fun to be in, and it was a different kind of route than going down the like the newspapers route that, that a lot of people go down when they get into sports media. So uh, I kind of avoided all that, but fortunately, I'm still. I'm still in the business and still um, making a living out of it. So it worked, it worked itself out in the end. Now, when would you come out? Would you come out when you're still at uni or would you come out later? No. So, <laughs> so very much um, things, to, as, I, as I sort of alluded to earlier, really things just kind of perpetuated for me. So I think uni, I felt like I missed a trick at uni because I think I had opportunities there. Um, look, looking back on things now where I could have I got to grips with that part of myself much earlier on and um whether it was just the legacy of my education and my upbringing um and everything else i had been through i didn't take those opportunities i just uh, as i say i just kind of kept, kept it hidden and, and sort of buried within myself and then when i went off to work again i was in a i was in a, a new city far from home didn't know that many people so it was more about trying to kind of fit into the culture and a sports newsroom certainly back in in the early part of this century so in the 2000s was very much like say a football dressing room might be a a lower league club or or what have you you know it was a very straight white male dominated environment where you would hear things said in a very laddie kind of banter way Um, and this was kind of my formative years in in, in in the industry and I had a couple of I had a couple of bad experiences early on when I started where I, I, I found out that people thought that I was gay and I know, and I found out that they were making jokes about it. And, and that kind of really sort of worried me because I thought that if I was kind of found out, then that would kind of ruin my career. And, and, you know, I'd have to kind of go home with my tail between my legs and all those kind of fears that you have when when you, when you're younger. So I just kind of buried it, um, Sort of deep within myself really and and that was terrible really because it just kind of it, it made me very unhappy so I didn't I didn't come out until I met um my my boyfriend still my boyfriend now Chris um who's basically kind of changed my life in in numerous ways um and that was in 20, 2013 that we met so I I went through yeah years of years of denying that part of myself Wow, that's that's crazy. I I didn't expect that to be honest with you. I never heard that part of your your story. Yeah, well, it's something that I suppose I don't really get that much opportunity to talk about. Obviously, my own sort of journey in sport, but that's kind of how things panned out for me. I I think there is a, an element to the fact that I'm so passionate about inclusion now and the work that I do and 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 the network and um is that I'm 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 always got that sort of thought in the back of my head that the last thing I'd ever want is for someone to kind of go through what I went went through um so the more visibility and representation um that we can have in sport will hopefully avoid uh, will hopefully you know create a help to create a, a climate uh, where somebody would be able to avoid the stuff that I went through when I was younger. Yeah, and that's what I think what you do is so important with sports media LGBT and what Sid and Jim do at Outsport and uh and just what people telling stories of people who are lesbian, gay, uh, bisexual, and transgender. And it, it I think it just helps so many people, even if you're not aware of exactly you know a specific story. Well I mean it's it, and it's such kind of progressive work as well. That's what's so enjoyable about it. There's still so many 
you know areas of sport where these things are, are either kind of or never discussed and and there's very few people relatively who are who are out in sport um unfortunately it's 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 increasing all the time and you know it's just even just reflecting back on when i first started doing this kind of thing properly i would say it's still relatively recent i mean it was only really 2016 that i started to to write about LGBT sport in the way I do now. And, and we partnered with Stonewall on the Rainbow Laces campaign at Sky Sports. Um, as I said to you before we started recording, like then LGBT sports media LGBT will kind of be two years old next month. Um, that was when we first kind of got around the table and started to talk about it. Um, we actually launched it more formally in November 2017. But, you know, this is in the overall scheme of things, this is a very kind of new new thing for certainly for here in the uk we uh, and you mentioned sid and jim at outsports and i'm always i'm always trying to kind of give a nod to, to them as much as possible because not only are they kind of mentors to me um and i'm very fortunate to have got the chance to get to know them um through through going over there and, and meeting sid when he's come over here and what have you but you know they're such inspirations and you know i, I sort of stand on the shoulders of giants really when uh, when I, I look back at the at the work that they've done for 20 years now since Outsports started in 99, and I would read that website when I was younger, when I was still in the closet, um, and, you know, get a lot of kind of inspiration and, and be kind of wowed by the, by the kind of the boldness that they would take on the topic as a topic that, you know, we were very kind of fearful, really, to kind of, or I was fearful to embrace over here. Uh, but now there's lots of different places that will run um, stories on on athletes and and people in sport who are LGBT. But again, one of the problems we had here in the UK was a lot of this stuff would just be covered in a really sensationalist way. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's still the odd kind of story you see now where it's a front page tabloid headline about a footballer who might be gay, but it's a secret or they're bi and they've, you know, there's some other kind of scandal involved and, and, and it's all just, whenever that comes around, it sets everything back because um, it's such a kind of unhelpful way to talk, talk about the topic. Um, but I really feel we're moving beyond that. And I haven't actually seen one of those, you know, awful tabloid front pages for a while now. Fingers crossed, touch wood. You know, I mean, you never know because we often think they've gone away and then suddenly one crops up unexpectedly. But yeah, that was that's, that was pretty much the only way these things were ever spoken about. It was over here, it was like, oh, and, and there's still a lot of fascination around which footballers are gay and who are they. And and that's just part of human curiosity, really. But but when you see it used to kind of sell newspapers and uh, that's that's really unhelpful. So, so the more we're moved away from that, the better. You know, it's funny because growing up, I think I was more, I've sort of loved England since I was a boy. And, you know, honestly, part of it probably was not to bring back, um, are you being served again? But seeing <laughs> that on TV and, you know, we would get it on our, our public access channels, the reruns of it. So I always thought that England was the more enlightened country. Oh, God. <laughs> but, yeah, but to hear, you know, stories um, talking to some athletes and and just reading more about it, it, it shocked me that it wasn't. The U.S. has sort of been between the two countries that has been sort of the leader and and out athletes, it seems. Yeah, I, I think sport in particular is just one of those parts of life that's always been quite conservative here. And I mean, we have a kind of a very British reserve. And I often see this when I look compare how we sometimes go about things compared to how you guys do things in the state. There's a kind of a, a, an understanding or an appreciation that 
privacy is important to people um and and we've we've always struggled with that um, difference between privacy and secrecy um and 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 sexuality and being LGBT for years was always wrapped up more within secrecy. It was kind of something that you would you wouldn't talk about in polite circles. You know, it was it was it was the way it was. It was and you know, the media. Everything is kind of referenced through the frame of the media. So the way that the newspapers were talking. And we have a we've had a problem here for years, as you'll know, with with the newspapers, with the tabloid press, and the way that they would you know, talk about people who were gay and and headlines that they would run and. And and that has permeated into society for a long time. So um, that has a huge influence on on just the the general public and their relationship with with people who are gay. So that's 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 been like one of the, the massive problems for years. Um, yeah. So I, I would say that are you being served would probably I would not encourage people necessarily to go back and and watch. I mean, although it's a fantastic series and, and very, very funny, but, <laughs> yeah. but it, it's, it's not exactly an accurate representation of, of gay people in Britain. <laughs> yeah. no, not at all. But it's, it's part of our cult- cultural, like, like it's part of our cultural history, I suppose. Yeah, and then, I mean, even, you know, in the, the 2000s, you'd have shows like Skins. So, oh, well, yeah. I mean, Skins was yeah, groundbreaking. Um, I, I remember, I think you chatted to Tom, didn't you, Tom Tom Bosworth on one of your episodes about skins yeah. and how, how important that was for him. And yeah, that was, that was one of the first times that, you know, you'd seen that particularly young gay people or, or people that were, you know, coming to terms with who, who they were you know, on TV. Cause there'd always been, that had always been wrapped up in, in section 28 before the idea that oh, we couldn't possibly kind of encourage young people to, to take ownership of who they were because there was all these, all these kind of, ideas that were essentially there to protect the children so skins was one of the first thing that came out of you know when we'd finally shaken off the shackles of section 28 and and it kind of gave creative people the chance to to you know push the boundaries and skins was, was very much part of that and then going back to sports why do you think football is the more conservative of all the sports with um gay athletes i mean you look at rugby there's out players, referees with Nigel Owens. Um, mm. Cricket has had a few guys come out, but football, I mean, we have Ryan Atkin who came out as a ref a few years ago, but it still seems to be the one that is sort of dragging behind. And it's really, the. it seems to me like the leader in sports that if someone did come out, it would just be a huge change. Yeah. I, I often, I, so I hear this, um, Obviously, we, we we kind of discuss this a lot, and and we try to to try and find ways that to improve the, the situation. But even with rugby and cricket, although we've had Nigel come out as a referee, and Gareth Thomas came out when he was when he was a player, and there's been very very few, and only really those two. Sam Sam Stanley also came out, but he was playing at not at a sort of top light top level of, of rugby union. Um, in cricket, Stephen Davis, but there hasn't been any other gay male cricketers who have come out. So it's been, even in rugby and cricket, which maybe people think are more kind of further on than football, there's only been one or two gay male players in those sports. Foot, football really is just, I mean, it is the biggest sport in this country. It's the, you know, it's the biggest sport in the world, you, you, you could argue. Um, I think in this country particularly, it's tied up so much around like the, the tribalism of the game. So the support levels are, are more club-focused and tribal than they would be in a sport like rugby union and cricket. So 
um, in terms of coming out, it would be there would always be, um, a, as I say, a, a thought in the back of a player's mind that it could be potentially used against them by a rival group of supporters. Um, so that, so that I think is is key. Um, however, you know, I, I do think that as we move forward, the game is much more unified when it comes to talking about um, the sort of LGBT inclusion in the in the game. So I'm I would be very hopeful that if and when it happens, and I hope it does happen soon, of, of course, because as you say, the impact it would have would be enormous. Um, I do believe that fans in general would would definitely unite as one, and and it would be a very supportive atmosphere for that player. I, I, I genuinely believe that. Um, it, that might not have been the case um, in previous years. And again, and it's a name that, that is often referenced, but it's important that it's referenced in the right way. Justin Fashionu, when he came out, English football was very, very different to how it is now because um, not just as a sport itself, but the way it sat into in, in society and the way that, um, that Justin Fashionu's story was was communicated out to the wider uh, general public on the front page of a tabloid newspaper um, and everything. So it's, it is, the game does have all these kind of, has a, has a lot of baggage essentially, and it's still weighed down by this baggage. Uh, so we need to kind of struggle that off and, and, and keep trying to move forward. But yes, um, and we, you know, we see over here when, for example, when Colin, uh, Colin Martin came out in, in, in Major League Soccer last summer, that was hugely um, impactful over here because the game is so, so big. So whenever um, a gay footballer kind of raises his voice and speaks up, Colin, Andy Brennan in Australia, who you've you've just had a chat with, um, you know, these stories have a big impact over here because the game is such a fabric of of life and and, and, and there's a a real appetite to, to see it move forward. How big do you think are the supporter groups, the LGBT supporter groups that are out now that I think most clubs in Premier League have and a lot of the lower divisions have as well. Yes, yeah, so I was very fortunate to be at an event yesterday um, where um, two friends of mine uh, who they won an award at the um, Attitude Magazine Annual Pride Awards um, and they are the founders of the England LGBT supporters group. So three lines pride that some of your listeners might have heard of and maybe saw the flag when they went to the World Cup in Russia mm-hmm. last summer. But not only have they do they create that group for the national team, but they're also very active within their club groups. So Di Cunningham, who is the founder of Proud Canaries, which is Norwich's LGBT fans group, which was one of the first that was created in this country um, about five or six years ago now. And Joe White, who's um, very very prominent in Gay Gunas, the Arsenal fans group, which is um, I think I'd be right in saying would be the biggest LGBT supporters group of any Premier League club here in the UK. Um, yeah. And, but there's so many there's they as a movement the pride in foot football movement which is kind of an umbrella that that um all of the different lgbt fan groups kind of have a, have a have a say in there's over 40 across the country um in the scottish game as well and and that's that's really been um snowballing um down the years and, and has a lot of momentum with it and 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 through as a collective, you know, they have the ear of, of the FA, they have the ear of UEFA. Um, they're really kind of making head, headway and, and doing a lot of great work um, behind the scenes sometimes with some quite difficult conversations. Um, so it's, 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 it's been a hugely important part of, of improving the climate here in the UK because the visibility that they provide at matches through banners and flags and representing their clubs on committees and um, and speaking to their 
diversity and inclusion managers at, at the clubs that they are part of and, and what have you. Um, they they have a big influence and um, it's been really, really impressive to see how that's grown. Yeah, because I know for Crystal Palace specifically, um, I think some office staff are going to walk with the Proud and Palace group in the Pride in London Parade on Sunday. Yes, uh, it's today. It's oh, Saturday. Yes. I'm um, sorry. sorry. No, it's fine. I, I'm all over the place this week, so it's just trying to remember what day of the week it is. Um, yeah, I'm Proud and Palace. So Emma right who um who's one of the founders of proud and palace so she's a member too of my sports media lgbt network she works in sports pr um so i know a lot of kind of uh, uh, i've watched her and steph do on proud and palace and it's incredible what they've achieved as well i mean all of the all of the lgbt fan groups are so active in the community as well um one of the groups at west brom proud baggies they do they, they're so active, they're so busy. They, they, they have lots of projects that they do um, in terms of like older people in the West Midlands area. Um, and so it's been also really, really good to see these groups kind of partner and collaborate with different kind of inclusion and diversity causes connected to their club or connected to, connected to the region um, in which they are. And that's been um, that's been another way in which they've been able to get their message out more widely. So they're very proactive, all these groups, and it's it's it's, it's really inspiring to see what they do. It really is cool. I mean, I obviously know firsthand with Crystal Palace, but so many of these groups are doing so much work, um, not only for the LGBT community, but for their clubs and the outreach they're doing to educate people and and make it and a they, place. Yeah, and they, you know, you will see groups that kind of go and talk to fans of other clubs that don't necessarily have a group yet and they will go and help them set things up. So um, two very good friends of mine are Gary and Sam. So Gary uh, uh, at Charlton in in Victor, the the player manager there, Sam's his boyfriend. um, And Sam recently started up the Villa, Aston Villa fans group, Villa and Proud. Um, Gary's been very active uh, across Charlton for several years now, including Proud Valiance, who's the vice chair of their LGBT fans group. So, and it's, let me interrupt it's, for it's quick just, too. Yeah, Gary also was on the recent episode of the Gay Footballers podcast with Adam McCabe. And he so was. If you want to hear yeah. about him and and what he's done? I check that out as well. Yeah, and and so you'll see these kind of uh, you know friends and and connections and 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 all just kind of bouncing off each other and and, and helping each other. And it's, it's what's kept the kind of the momentum going. And, and there's still a long way to go yet. So we're up to over 40 LGBT fan groups now. We want to get the whole league. <laughs> we want to get every single club having an LGBT fan, fan group. And even if it's just like, you know, one or two people, you know, we want to see them kind of bonding together with allies within their club. We want the club itself to support. Um, so even if you've got like a, an LGBT fan group of, say, five people at a lower league club, um, and it's you know a couple of fans. It's a, it's a few allies, and it's somebody who represents the club. You know that group in itself is enough to to have a really really massive impact. Even though it's it's relatively few people in a crowd of thousands, um, it, it, it can be it can be really important. Yeah, and I don't mean to keep bringing up Crystal Palace, but Steph and Emma, what they have done, it was basically them for the first few years with the social media and then contacting the club and, and building a relationship that way. So it really could just take one or two people to get started before you really can grow a group. Yeah, that's, that's right. And if anyone's listening to this and, 
um, I would just urge them to just get in touch with Pride of Football, get in touch with Di and, and Joe and 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 the, and the team there, and ask for some help, and they will they will be you know they will give you everything you need to get started. Yeah, and in the show notes, I'll put links too to Joe and Di's social media so they can find them as well because they're they're really uh, I've talked to Joe quite a bit about random stuff, but. Okay, great. Well, and also you know, sports media LGBT, we're we're happy to facilitate any of these conversations. We we have a few connections in various places, so we can. Help. Oh yeah, and definitely we're going to start talking about that now. So okay. you talked you talked about over two years ago, conversations started to happen to to create this group. Yes, can we go a little bit about that. Yeah, so I guess it stems back really from 2016 first when I I increased. Um, this kind of sports journalism that I do um, into LGBT um, in sport more more generally. There was a short film called Wonder Kid that was kind of really I always call it like the gateway drug into doing what I do. And Reese, who kind of created this short film, which I'd urge your listeners to go and watch, it's still it's available online at wonderkidfilm.co.uk. It's a half hour film which he got he kind of started on kickstarter he had the backing of lots of different organizations the fa um ian mckellen helped um yeah it was it was fantastic what he created and so he created this short film and some of he had a route into sky sports through through a friend and some of our football broadcast talent lent their voices to the film to kind of narrate it so martin tyler jeff shreves uh, Guy Havard and Alan Smith, former Arsenal player, for um, who's one of our um, co-commentators, um, they all kind of let their voices to the film. So I kind of I backed the projects on Kickstarter right from the very start. And when I found out that Sky Sports Voices were part of it, I was desperate to kind of bring it into like the Sky Sports fold and make sure that we covered it. Um, and it all kind of stemmed from, from that. We had a screening at Sky. Loads of people came from across the business. It really raised people's awareness. And then within a short space of time, Stonewall approached us because they were looking to expand the Rainbow Laces campaign that had been going for um, like two or three years. And they were looking to try to take it in a new direction. By um, Previously, it had been kind of the brainchild of Paddy Power, the, the bookmakers. Uh, and they wanted to kind of change the, the setup. So they were looking for different partners. So they needed a media partner. So they approached Sky Sports. And because we'd done this kind of groundwork with the Wonderkid film, we were in a really good place to kind of have that conversation. And and so we, we jumped on board um, just in time for the annual campaign activation, which always takes place around November, December time. Um, that was in 2016. So we, so we did that. And again, just had a really great response. Was able to do loads of content around LGBT sport, and um, and it was something I was really passionate about. So to suddenly to have the backing of my employer, as well as uh, as well as wanting to do it, you know, because I, I knew it needed to be done, was was just kind of it put everything together and um, unlocked a lot of doors and started a lot a lot of conversations. And through Twitter, really, I suppose, and and through. Um, through Stonewall and, and 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 other kind of avenues, really, I, I found I, I learned more about other people working in my industry who are LGBT. Um, but we didn't we didn't have a network. There was no kind of way to bring us together to talk about you know things that needed to change in our industry. Um, and I mean, I'm a passionate believer in LGBT networks. We have a really successful one at Sky. And in lots of different walks of life, you know, as, as you'll know, you'll see LGBT net networks, and and here they've 
they have them in the construction industry, they have them in healthcare, all these different walks of life. There was nothing in sports media to bring bring people together. So we were kind of like, right, let's start one. You know, let's let's get everyone together. So we had a meeting in a pub. There's probably about like ten of us, I think, to start with, um, and there was a real appetite for it. Um, and then we and then we we started off properly in November 2017. So now. Um, it's kind of stems more into a networking and advocacy group because there's still you know a lot to do. Um, so, as a group of, of, of people, we you know we try to partner and collaborate with different organisations. So we're I'm very sort of close to the people at Kick It Out at Women in Football, which is a big network over here. Pride in Football, who I mentioned earlier. Pride Sports and the Football v Homophobia campaign, which is run by Lou Englefield, which is um, which is really really important campaign we have here alongside Rainbow Laces, Stonewall, obviously, um, and then in the sports media space as well, uh, Sports Journalists Association, which is the kind of the biggest uh, membership um, we have here for sports media in the UK, uh, Bcoms, which is the Black Collective of Media and Sport. Who um, who have been campaigning for several years now for greater BAME uh, women and also LGBT. They pick up lots of different threads um, from the diversity and inclusion picture, and they they have been really influential in sports media as well because we have we have kind of a two two parts to it really. There's the the content that we all produce as journalists um, and making sure that that reflects and represents all parts of society. So that's something that, that we're all really passionate about, but also within our industry itself. So we want to make sure that sports newsrooms, sports editors, um, all those people, uh, senior leaders in positions of influence are mindful of LGBT inclusion. And, and it's talked about and, and their publications are presenting it in a responsible way. And again, that stands back to what I was probably saying earlier about wanting to make sure that no one kind of goes through what I went through when I was struggling in my in my 20s and early 30s. How big was it for you to come from a point where you find out people are making fun of you because you could be gay to a point where you have helped form this group of media people who are now supporting LGBT members and talking about sports? And I mean, how was that for you? It's just shocking sometimes. I look, I look back and so those kind of incidents I had when I was starting out in my career, and I think for a time, like I was kind of quite angry about it, and because I knew, I knew the effect that it, it had had on me. But I think now that I'm older and, and wiser, and, and I've and I've kind of been able to, as I say, kind of take ownership of who I am, then I think it was just a, it was just a sign of the times. Really, people didn't know how to how to act and how to behave. And they didn't understand the effect that, you know, a joke about somebody being gay could actually have on that person. Um, it, was, it was just a lack of awareness. Um, and so now we, it is really important that we do talk to people about how damaging the closet is as a, in terms of people's mental health, not being able to have anyone that they feel that they can talk to about, about something that's such a integral part of their identity. Um, that's, so yeah, when I when I, I look back on that time now and look at, at how far we've come and how far I've come, it does seem like a world away. But um, that's just how things have changed, I think, and um, and the rapid sort of momentum that that you know we I'm chatting to you today on the on the morning of Pride here in London, and and it's bigger than ever before. 
if you told me then when I was in 21, 22, that the the football association would be marching in pride and the ECB would be marching in pride, you know, I wouldn't have believed it. I would have laughed in your face. There was never any sort of suggestion that that was a potential thing. Gay pride, as it was known then, was was something weird that happened where, you know, people um, who were very different to you would kind of come together and you would, uh, and it would be, it would be tolerated. It wouldn't be accepted. That, that, that was the feeling. Um, and now pride season is so big. I've, you know, I've, I've, been, I've been so busy this week because there's just so much going on and it's, it's so great to see it embraced by every single strata of society and, and sport isn't, isn't completely there yet. But the significance of the FA, for example, being part of Pride today is is, is monumental. Um, and with the LGBT supporters groups, a lot of them uh, are representing their clubs, and their clubs are supporting them wholeheartedly. So the you know, the the, um, the the Palace group, as you say, is there are members of staff from Palace there in the group, and Spurs will be the same, and and the Charlton family that will march today is the community trust and the fan group and players from Invicta, you know, at all different levels of the club and, and, the, and the fan base. So it's, it's just so empowering. It really is. It really is cool to see from afar. Um, before I talk about, you've had a busy couple months. I do want to ask you one thing about sports media, LGBT. Where do you see it going from here? There's still so much work that needs to be done. Where do you see that group? Well, you know, essentially, we're a, a network group, so I really want to see us continue to to grow, and and I want people to feel that they can approach us and be a part of what we do. I mean, any kind of national or international network group, we have you know people that have connected to us in in America, in in Canada, in Australia as well. I, I want people to feel that you know we're approachable and they can be a part of what we do, which is very difficult when people are spread out so far and wide geographically, but. Um, whether they're kind of being part of the network means that they are connected to us on social media or they contribute in, in some other way, then, then that's really important as well. Um, as a, you know, as a, as a kind of smaller group of, of people who are more active in terms of, uh, of events and, and the conversations we have, then um, I, I'm very, I've actually just become part of the committee on the Sports Journalists Association. So that's, that's an important step for me. Um, and it means that I will hopefully be able to kind of have a, a little bit more influence in the industry more more widely and, and can have these kind of important conversations with, with more, more people. Um, I'm really looking now at kind of sports editors, um, editors, you know, who are able to have that kind of influence in their newsroom and can and can make sure that not only are sort of the LGBT people in there who are their em- employees, make sure that they feel properly safe, supported and welcome, but make sure that there's LGBT sports content now and again in the pages of their newspapers and, and, and on their website. So I think that's, and actually, you know, there's, there's lots of really positive stuff that's, that's out there already. Um, Alex Kajelski is a very great friend of mine who um, has been editor of the sports editor of the times for several years um, and he's someone who's part of the network and has been a great inspiration to me as well. He's, he's done some fantastic work on a big publication such, such as that in terms of making people more aware of what's going on. 
so so that's kind of one of the aims of the group. We've got an event we're having in October, which is going to be our second event, um, where we talk um, and we bring people together in one room and we talk about authenticity in sport and how it can boost performance. So I was very uh, pleased to have our first event in October of last year, which we did at the BBC in Manchester. Tom, who we mentioned earlier, Tom Bosworth came along, spoke. Charlie Martin, great friend of mine, who's a racing driver. She has um, big ambitions to race at Le Mans in the 24-hour race there. She talks about uh, her journey as a trans woman in sport, which is fascinating. And her profile grows and grows uh, week on week. Um, she's a great advocate for trans inclusion in sport. And and she, so she spoke to our, to our group there. Um, and Jack Murley, who you'll know, who runs the BBC's LGBT Sport podcast, mm-hmm. um, which has just reached 50 episodes, which is tremendous. So shout out to Jack for that. Um, yeah, he's doing amazing. Podcast. Yeah, he's doing amazing work at the Beeb, um, which is really important. Beth Fisher, a friend of mine um, on the network, she's just started a new role at ITV Sport Wales. Um, she was part of our event as well. So, so we're going to do that uh, again, and we're going to do it bigger and better. And um, I've just found out this week that uh, we've got a venue in central London, which uh, which will enable a lot more people to come. Um, which I'm really excited about. So now the hard work really starts in terms of getting that event together and getting people to come and speak and 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 be a part of it in different ways. So so that's going to be uh, that's going to be a big landmark for us to have this event in October. That's in the going to be in the week of National Coming Out Day, which isn't so much a big thing here in the UK. But I know it's it's kind of a little bit bigger I think in the states and and in Canada, um, but it really ties into our themes about authenticity and um, and how that can how coming out can actually be a a boost to your performance rather than something that kind of brings you down so to speak um so that's going to be that's going to be really exciting that'll be cool now um before i let you go i want to talk about you have truly had a month of pride it started what early june with your trip out to california yes and you're part of outsports 20th anniversary pride i was that was a an amazing trip um and and so great to be to be there so i was i went to my first outsports pride when it was in new york last year and i'd met sid before when he'd come to the uk and and we, we chat quite regularly online so to meet uh jim and the rest of the outsports family so many athletes and coaches and people in sports administration whose stories i'd read on the website um got to meet some of the speakers there, like Harrison Brown, for example, in hockey, Nick Nick McCarville, friend of mine, who's obviously you know really high profile in sports media, and Katie Barnes, and and just so many people that that I know of. You're watching from across the pond and seeing all the great work that they do in the states. Um, so it's so wonderful to go over there and, and meet them and and just kind of build a lot more connections. And you know you can only really have a certain connection to people through social media and, and emails and, and what have you. So to meet them in person was just, was just brilliant. And then um, honoured to be asked by Sid to kind of be a part of, uh, a bigger part of the 20th anniversary event they just held in, in Los Angeles, which was at UCLA, which I don't know if you have been, obviously it's your state, so you might have been, but um, it's it's such a great, an amazing campus and the facilities really? were just, were just tr- terrific. Um, and among the speakers there, Greg Luganis, Randy Gardner, uh, uh, Cece Telfer, who's of course been in the news so much recently because of her 
um, her uh, racing as a trans athlete in in states championships uh, just lots and lots of different people from across sport it was it was really um really great to to meet them too and and Sid asked me kindly to host a panel on out women in sport uh, so i did that with Joanna Lohman Julie Shaw Christina Rivera from UCLA and Hayley Vedekis um who were just the the, the loveliest panel to to get the chance to to moderate very kind of gracious towards me as this white British guy, um, you know, whose stories I've kind of followed um, from from over here, and they're very gracious with their with their time and and the questions, and and we had a good, great atmosphere in the room. So it was just lovely to be a part of that. And there's so much else that Sid um, and Dawn um, and the kind of Outsports Vox Media team had kind of put on around the weekend. Um, and um, this was the fourth Outsports Pride that they'd done. Um, I think the fifth one um, next year, who knows where, where that will be, but it would be fantastic if you could come and, and be a part of that. I know how great it would be to have, have you there. And, and just to keep it growing year on year, because the influence that Outsports has had in terms of, you know, not just getting those stories out there online, but just in terms of bringing people together in a community and, and the friendships that have been formed through throughout sports it's it's just something that's just wonderful so if sports media lgbc can have a little bit of the same effect here in the uk um you know or in europe um in terms of uh, in terms of that then then we'll be following again following in the footsteps of of sid and jim and everything that they do it's it's, it's really great to be a small part of that that's cool during that time that you were out here i think you also were part of the announcing of racing pride uk yes yes that's time. right yeah, so I'd actually, um, that was one of the last things I did before I flew over um, to, to LA was um, was help them finally launch that. We've been talking about it for several weeks and months and Stone, Stonewall was kind of our um, our meeting place where we, we'd go and we'd, and we'd kind of talk with these, um, these guys. So Rich Morris, who's a young racing driver, he's, uh, he's he drives, I'm not sure, remember the series or the model of car that he drives but it's kind of sports cars spire racing i think is the team that he races for um but they're, they're actually they, they do they kind of a lot of them drive in kind of different series different levels of, uh, of motorsport um so they've been really really passionate they've kind of they've been inspired i think by pride in football and and some of the other kind of lgbt networks in sport that had been created in the last year or so and were desperate to get something off the ground in motorsport but they wanted to do it whereby it had real impact when it launched and so they had lots of conversations and um and an, another uh, young motorsport journalist called chris sharp he was involved another young racing driver called nick reeve and and they kind of came together and, we, and so we helped them through it my um, me in terms of the work that I do at Sky Sports and Stonewall through all their experience of LGBT networks. We also had Auto Sport involved with Big Motorsport magazine. They were very supportive. And yeah, so they launched the, the Motorsport Network at the start of the month. And it's just been um, it's been hugely in, uh, successful and they've had lots of response from across the industry. Uh, they've got big ambitions to take it even further. Charlie Martin, who I mentioned earlier, is an ambassador. She's 
She's um, been involved, Matt Bishop and Sarah Moore, who are part of the W Series Women's um, uh, Motorsport Series, which is in its, in its early days. They've been on board from the start as well. So it's been tremendous to see that get off the ground. And I can't wait to see what happens next with those guys. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool to follow along. And you could follow on Instagram at Racing Pride UK. Um, and I'll have that link in the show notes as well. This past, So you take a vacation, obviously, in California after Outsports Pride. And you head back home. And then your craziness continues um it's been fun to follow you along this week as you're going to different events you're at um uh, number 10 downing street what two nights yeah. ago yeah so that was tuesday um so again that was a real privilege to to get to get the chance to attend that that was through stonewall who were who uh, nominated um a series of people that they worked for in different walks of life so sport was only one of them and uh, we got the chance to go to the annual Pride reception that's held at, at, in the garden at 10 Downing Street. Um, the PM wasn't there. She was in Brussels. Uh, but Penny Morden, who's the um, Women and Equalities Minister here, Secretary of State for Defence as well, she kind of hosted the event. And Ryan, who you mentioned earlier, the, the football referee whose story um, we did on Sky Sports two years ago, he came, Charlie Charlie Martin, racing driver, who I mentioned, she was there as well. Um, so that was that was fab. Um, yeah, there's been quite a few events this this week. Um, the, the Pride Awards that I went to yesterday, where we talked about Di and Joe and and and, and the award that they got. Um, also, um, Ken Macharia and the Bristol Bisons rugby players, whose story has been a big talking point here in the UK because the Home Office is has been attempting in recent weeks and months to deport Ken back to Kenya. So they won an award for all their activism and the way that they raised awareness around Ken's story. Um, so it was fantastic to me because that's the story that I covered for way back into last year as well. And so it was lovely to meet them in person. Um, so it's been, yeah, it's been a really, really, a really big, big week. And it just kind of reminded me and actually kind of alludes back to the question the, before this one where we were talking about um, race and pride. It's just so important for me to see everybody kind of helping each other, particularly in sport. Um, and I, I, I do occasionally see some things that happen and I, and I kind of think people tend to get focused on just what they do and, and uh, really important work. Um, but sometimes it's easy to, to get bogged down in just the narrow focus of, of what you might be fighting for on your particular campaign or your particular sport or your team or what have you. But the more that we can kind of collaborate and partner up on projects and, and share each other's good work, um, then that makes these things go so much further. So it's, it's, I'm, I'm all for that. That's one of the reasons why Sports Media LGBT was founded as well, was to try and amplify as many of those voices from across sport and get people working together. So, um, so all these events and, and opportunities that I get, and I'm very, I'm, I'm very kind of humbled to, to be asked to go, to go along. I'm, I'm, I'm always trying to use them to, to kind of make more people aware of, of the good work that's been done and bring them into the conversation. That's, that, that, that's the main thing. I want people to feel that they can be a part of it um, because a lot of the kind of, a lot of, I think a lot of the kind of fear, for example, is, is people thinking, oh, well, I, I don't fit into that. Okay, I, I'm LGBT and I know I know that I'm gay or I know that I'm bi or what have you, but I don't see myself represented. I don't see myself reflected in 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 this particular um, 
event or, or project that's go, going on and I want people to kind of forget about all that. I want them to reach out and, and feel that they can be a part of, of, of everything that, that's going on because there is a place for them and it's really important that their voice is heard as much as everybody else's. Today, for me anyways, the big deal with International Gay Rugby Association, the groups, the clubs involved on Facebook, they posted a uh, press release from England Rugby talking about England Rugby walking in the Pride Parade. And you alluded yes. to before about uh, Football Association doing that, Cricket Association doing that as well. Is How big of a deal for you as a, as a person, most importantly, but as a member of the LGBT community, a reporter, how big is that for you to see all of that happening now? It's, it's, it's really, really important. I think, you know, there's lots of different groups and organizations involved in pride and there's a big discussion here particularly this year around the commercialization or corporatization of pride um and but for me it's 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 so important that you know there'll be like over a million people will be in london today to see the parade and and for sports to be a part of that has a massive impact you can't deny the 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 way that a young person would feel if going along to that pride parade today, um, watching all the different floats and, and groups walk past and then suddenly to see sports represented and the football association in the pride parade. And then the England rugby, as you say, walking with the Kings cross Steelers and the, the logos being part of a bigger celebration and a protest because pride is a protest and it's important that, that, that we remember that there's a lot of things that we still need to achieve, but it's, it's, it's massively important that sport takes part and is, and, and shows that all of the, all of that LGBT inclusion work that is done behind the scenes that people don't necessarily read about, they don't know about because it's, it's not necessarily, you know, it's, it's not necessary. It's not really why people are passionate about sport. I mean, we, we, you know, we get into sport because we love the game. We, we, we follow it, we watch it. And, and it is part of our natural conversation. Like LGBT is just one thread that helps to ensure that everyone, um, you know, is part of the game. That's, that's really what it is. But, but sometimes I find in sport, people don't, they don't want to make a song and dance about it. They kind of feel okay, inclusion work, well, we're not going to put out any press releases or we're not going to run a story on this because because it's it, we, we don't think people will read it or we don't think they're interested. It's really it's really important that, that people talk about the work that they're doing and, and they get those messages out there because LGBT is not a, is not a visible um, characteristic for, for most people, I think. Um, you know, it's, it's a one part of, of, of who we are. And, and essentially, you need to talk about what you do in order for it to reach people. And to have the FA, the ECB, England Rugby, all involved in Pride um, this year is a big step forward. And, you know, year on year, I want to see, I want to see more sports governing bodies um, not they don't have to be in the parades to, to you know to be to be a part of pride but i want to see them talking about it and i want to see them being more using their voice and their platforms to to ensure that more people access their sport that's what it's all about yeah it is obviously today's a big day big celebration day um like you said a protest but it's also a lot of fun 
Let me go ahead and wrap up this because I want you to get going and, and just have an awesome day. Let me ask you my final 20 questions. Let me start now. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? Ooh, if I could have a superpower, what would it be? Um, I would love to fly. That would be amazing. I, I, I think we've just been on um, various kind of roller coasters and, and attractions at the theme parks we went to in, in California, uh, a couple of which give you that feeling of flying. Yeah. Um, have, you, have you been on the, the Harry Potter one at Universal Studios? No, not yet. Oh, that's that's pretty epic. So um, that gives you the fit. Actually, I felt a bit sick after that one. So maybe that's not the best example. But um, yeah, anything like like that, 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 that would be that would be something I'd love to do. All right. If you could have a personal theme song, what song would you choose? <laughs> a personal theme song. So Chris and I, Chris, my boyfriend, and I, we often sort of make jokes about the songs in our head um, and <laughs> and what have you. And that becomes like our personal theme tunes. Um, I don't know, it needs to be something like empowering, wouldn't it? I think, oh God, this is a really difficult question, something really empowering. Um, that's a tough question. To, to be honest, it, a lot of them are just like stupid theme theme tunes. So actually, what well, I'm, I'm just going to go for the stupid answer. So do you know the, um, the Simpsons episode where Homer's in the land of chocolate? No, I've not seen that one. Oh, it's, quite, it's classic Simpsons episodes. You have to look it up. But there's a, there's a really stupid little tune that plays when Homer's in the land of chocolate. I think I think that would be, be my theme tune, yeah, definitely. All right. <laughs> who was who your first celebrity crush? I, you know, I've heard you ask this question on previous pods, and, uh, and it was one of those that I thought about in advance of this because I thought I don't want to stumble and, and say something stupid. Um, so I'm going to say... Zach from Saved by the Bell. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I had to give that some thought, but um, I remember like in my teens watching that and thinking, oh, he's pretty. Uh, so yeah, there you go. Yeah, because being by myself, that um, I always had Alyssa Milano. And then, oh, okay. right. and then there's a, uh, an actor, his name is um, Brian Bloom. He just had the, these most amazing eyes. As a, and I don't think he'd acts anymore, but I just remember Brian Bloom. Which 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 show was he in? Was he in a TV show? He was in a lot of like teen shows and and teen movies back in the, okay. the late eighties. But yeah, so that it was always for me. Okay, I've just, just searched for him. Uh, so uh, okay, right, yeah, I sort of I can see that he's he's obviously older now in his Wikipedia picture, but um, I can see that he's got yeah, yeah piercing, piercing blue eyes. Yeah, he yeah, does. very nice. If you could meet anyone dead or alive, who would it be? I think actually, because it's a name that, and we talked about it today, but it's someone that is spoken about so much in the work that I do. And I'm, I'm never too far away from someone saying Justin Fashion's name. Um, I would love to ha- have a conversation. That, that would be the most fascinating interview because so much of his story, I don't know if you've seen, there's a, a documentary that's on Netflix called Forbidden Games. Uh, which tells uh, part of Justin's story. I think it's it's such a multi-layered uh, story that there's you could you could unpack it for in a much longer format than just a, an hour and a half uh, film. But everything that he went through, his relationship with the media, some of the stories. Um, I'm fortunate to know some people that did know him, um, and and it's always great to to chat through. Um, but yeah, he's such a kind of pivotal figure in in the work that I do, and um, I think it would be great to have a chat with him. You know, it's one of those things that I've never thought about as as an answer for me for that question, but that really is a great one. 
to live what he lived through and and yeah, have his life could, end the way it did. I mean, that that would be a hell of an interview to to be able to you know to put out there. So um, yeah, well, what a what a story. I mean, it's it's so tragic. Um, yeah, and 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 it's had such a massive. He'll he'll obviously like he he could never have known that he would be talked about so much even today. Um, so. Um, and and one of one of the things, and I, I got to write a piece about him earlier in the year, but there was a lot of happiness there as well. That's that's one of the things that people don't don't know. I think there were times in his life when he was like, you know, out um, after he'd come out in in the papers. But there were times that when he was with, with people that he knew, with friends. Um, you know, when he was at, at Torquay, which is one of the clubs that he played for when he was a bit older. Um, you know, he had he had he had a big group of, of friends that supported him as well. Um, it was a it, you know, it was a story that um, has so many different arcs and troughs, like peaks and troughs. Um, so it's important that people understand that that better. And I don't think you will ever really and um, will ever really know like everything that went on. Sadly, oh no, not at all. Mm. And I'm definitely going to check that out on Netflix. Yeah, you should. It's um, it's it's not a perfect do- documentary. There's, uh, I'm, I remember when it came out, um, Amal, his niece, um, wasn't particularly happy with it. Um, but you know, it's a, it, it as a vehicle for people to understand more about the Justin Fashion News story and and how how complicated it is. Then it is definitely is a, a gateway to that. All right, cool. Um, what is the most interesting thing you've read or seen this week? most interesting thing i've read or seen this week i did read um i'm there's so much that's happening in australia at the moment um and particularly around he who shall not be named um, from (laughs) one of your previous podcasts um (laughs) uh and but there's lots of stuff that's tumbling out of that and and the australian relationship with with lgbt sports in 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 that country yeah there's there's so much going on in australia at the moment um that one of the stories that was shared, I think, on Rugby Australia was um, a story about a rugby player who's a Pacific Islander. Um, and he's obviously coming at the, that whole struggle with faith and sexuality in a very different place from, from Izzy Falau. Uh, so they shared his story. Um, uh, Andrew Fitzsimianu, I think his name is. I'm not sure I pronounced that properly. But uh, yeah, I'd encourage people to go and check that out because it was a, a different angle to the whole fallout stuff. And I thought it was a really interesting read. So yeah, have a look for that. Patrick yeah, Galloway, that. Patrick Galloway wrote it up for ABC in, in, in Australia, I think. So yeah, it's on our timeline. I shared it earlier in the week and it was a really good read. All right, cool. Uh, what is the most recent streaming obsession you have? Do you watch, t- watch TV? Yes. Uh, but I have, do you know, I'm really out of, we've have so much is backed up on the, on the, on the planner. On, the, on our skybox um, to watch, so we're we're quite far behind on things. Um, I'm a, I love Bosch on Amazon. Um, I don't know if you if you ever watched that. So this was one of the things that was great for me to go to LA for the first time last month was because I love the Michael Connolly books. Mm-hmm. Um, Harry Harry Bosch is his detective, um, and it was just to see and be in some of the locations that I've, I've read in all in all the books. So there's a series that they have on Amazon. Uh, on Prime Video, um, I think is, uh, and uh, it's they're into like the fourth series now, um, and it's based on books, and I, I love that because it brings it all to life. So, so that's that's one of my obsessions. Yeah, nice. Which fictional character would you like to meet in real life? Uh, so, kind of detective fiction is kind of one of my big passions. 
And growing up, I read the Agatha Christie books probably over and over again and, and tried to make sure that I read them all, which is quite an undertaking because there's, <laughs> there's a lot of them. So I'm going to say Poirot because, um, yeah, that was I was absolutely in love with with the whole Christie genre, uh, the oeuvre of, of Agatha Christie. So Poirot would be mine. If animals can talk, which animal would be the most annoying? Okay, so we went to San Diego Zoo when we went to California. So um, that was that was amazing. What what fantastic place that is! Um, and I was I thought about this question as I was walking around the zoo. So I'm going to say meerkats. Oh, okay. Um, I love meerkats. I think they're really really cute. But um, I just think they're constantly on it. You know, they're, because their their sense of awareness is so heightened. Um, and I just think they they would be annoying because they're so anxious. They're such anxious animals, aren't they? They're yeah, just they always are. like on the, on the lookout for and, and constantly in fear that they're going to be attacked. Uh, so I think that would that would become quite quite wearying after a while. So I'm going to say meerkats, even though I love them, I think they're cute. They are cute little things, aren't they? Who inspires you? Who inspires me? Um, or what could also be asked? You know, there's so many. It's really hard to pin down, but. It's some of the people actually that, for example, I got to meet yesterday. Uh, so Di, uh, Di Cunningham in particular has, has been, you know, a great friend of mine and someone who I'm constantly amazed at how she gets the energy to do all the kind of work that she that she does. She's so passionate about what she does in terms of raising awareness about LGBT inclusion in football. Um, Sid and Jim are out sports. Sid in particular, um, just his activism and the strength of his writing um, just the uh, just the impact that he's that he's made, um, you know, and and we we often kind of not often, but we sometimes disagree on certain things, um, and you know, but we always have really kind of ro- robust kind of discussions, and um, and I, I I always I always feel like he's got my back um, in, in anything that that we, we do. So to have to be able to get to know him uh, a little bit in recent years. Um, you know, to be able to call him a friend, uh, that means a lot to me. So, yeah, I'll say Sid and, Sid and die. All right. Yeah, and honestly, he was my first guest on the show, and I really wanted you to be the last guest for my first season just because how you two are doing similar things and how important you both are. I sort of want those bookends for what I did this season. Yeah, and, I mean, it's it's so great, the podcast. Uh, I love I love your podcast and and to see the how it's how it's progressed and how much effort and time that you put into it this season all the guests you've had I mean it's 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 just another part of a of the bigger picture but it's it will have enabled so many people to tap into so many stories um so you know we all we're all in it together well, everyone's like doing everyone all of us are doing our bit so it's um you know we inspire each other I think yeah we do what is your favorite word my favorite word um i really like the word razzmatazz that is a good one yeah razzmatazz is a word i love there used to be a tv show called razzmatazz here and i've always just thought what a great word it just like it says everything in it um so so i'm gonna say that what is your least favorite word my least favorite word um can i use an 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 anti-gay word Oh, yeah, you can use whatever you want. Yeah, so the word faggot. 
that's just the worst word and like oh that's that's a word that whenever i see used and people use it sometimes you see it on social media or um and i, I just know the um the, the power that that word has um it's it's, it's horrible so yeah I'd, I'd send that into room 101 do you know what room you know what room 101 is we have a tv series here called room 101 it's the no. place in it's the place in 1984 the george orwell novel where all the worst things are kept so okay. it goes in there yeah what turns you on creatively spiritually or emotionally um creatively spiritually or emotionally mm-hmm. um i think it like so creatively it would just be kind of reading reading you know other kind of people sharing their stories whether that's on out sports or or different platforms i'm not i'm not a massively spiritual person um so i'm not i, I you know i don't have great sort of i have i have my faith is in people rather than anything of a higher being um so i'm, I'm a bit more of a humanist i think when it comes to that so i'll probably swerve that one and emotionally i'd have to say the boyfriend wouldn't i so um yeah so chris what turns you off what turns me off um willful ignorance so people that uh, for example there's still a lot of opposition i think you see to some of the stories that you know i might do for sky sports or or some of the stuff that we might put out there um in the online media sort of world and it's people that just want to antagonize and stand against something by deliberately not seeing the benefit of it so they can't put themselves in somebody else's shoes or that or they refuse to do so um and that infuriates me because empathy empathy is 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 critical to to everything that we do and and is the way that you go to the movies and you put yourself in someone else's shoes and, and you see the world through their eyes and that's that's a massive part of, of what all of us do i think in terms of lgbt sports media um and for some for people to kind of deny that that happens uh, in in whatever way they choose to do that is just really unhelpful so that annoys me no end what is your favorite curse word uh fuck Probably it's yeah, the the universal. It's it has no, it's, it never loses its power if used in the right way. So yeah. And like I've had a few guests just say that that word can be used in so many ways. So it really is the ultimate one. Yeah. And when people use it unexpectedly, or when somebody that you, that you don't expect to use it uses it, there's something brilliant about that. I think it just kind of it elevates it. So when, for example, someone who's a bit more uh, senior in years or someone maybe who's a bit um, comes from a higher social standing you know if you know what I mean um, it's quite funny actually when we see they, they have one of the kind of talk shows here in the UK the Graham Norton show um, oh yeah I've watched yeah, that which years. is oh it's it's, it's it's really really good he's so, he's so good at in the same way that some of the talk show hosts you have in the States are excellent. And some of the guests, because he's reached that level of celebrity, some of the guests that he's able to get on, and because he, they all come on at the same time and they're all talking together, so you get these great conversations between between uh, people like uh, British actors and American actors and musicians, and uh, and to see them all together, kind of, it's just like something you want to be a part of. The format is, is just really, really good. Um, and so when you get somebody on like, Dame Judy Dench or um, 
you know, with kind of a, a, an American actress, etc. And suddenly, like someone like Dame, Dame Judy, I, I, I hope she has done this because I, I, I think I remember it happening. But I'm sure she she would have dropped the f bomb in a conversation, and, and it's just kind of it's just joyous to see it because it's so unexpected and it, it just brings the house down. So, so that I oh, like yeah. to see that. Who is the woman that she was in Harry Potter? She played the the professor who did the plants. Oh, um, Miriam Margulies. When she is on Graham Norton, she tells the most outrageous stories. She is she is a force of nature. Yeah, she's incredible. Yeah. And one more thing about Graham too. I love seeing the first time American guest on the show and they get this look in their face after like 10 minutes where they're like, what the hell am I watching or what the hell am I a part of? Yeah, that's right. Cause there's nothing that's off limits and they will, and the, their researchers are very, very good at raking up stuff from celebrities past that they're a bit embarrassed about or that they've kind of forgotten about and they will confront them with it. And they'll just be like, oh my God, I thought I was here to promote my film, yeah. or promote my promote my TV series. And you're going back to when I was 15 or something. And, 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 you, but they, they just go with it because I think, yeah, you, you're right. There's that initial sort of point of, of trepidation but then they, they know that the the atmosphere in the room is one of love so i think i think they they come around but yeah there's a really famous talk show interview sorry i'm just going to ramble on there but um michael parkinson who's a famous um talk show host here in the uk he's kind of retired now but um he had an interview with meg ryan and i think it's probably still on on youtube but it was a real car crash interview it was one of those <laughs> one of those where she came on she just didn't want to answer any questions um and and it was so difficult for him and i yeah again I, i'd encourage you to watch it because it's, it's quite funny really it out, look, sure. looking back yeah yeah michael parkinson and meg, meg ryan yeah definitely look, look it up that's that's when things go wrong <laughs> <laughs> what sound or noise do you love what sound or noise do i love um coffee brewing <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that would be one yeah uh, i haven't had enough coffee yet today you can probably tell from my raspy voice uh, and the fact that i'm not quite on it but i need coffee i haven't had enough today yet so coffee brewing would be all right what sound or noise do you hate oh do you know like the famous one like nails on a blackboard that kind of thing um any screechy kind of yeah, it's giving me the shivers just thinking about it. Um, yeah, that's that's a horrendous sound. All right, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Again, harking back to previous answers, I would like to have been to work as a as a detective in the police, like kind of investigator, a PI. I okay. can do that as well. Yeah, I'm I'm really into kind of any sort of crime thing is is like my passion beyond what I do. So um, so I'd say that. All right. What profession would you not like to do? Uh, I'm not very good. I'm not very good at anything that's kind of customer facing. So anything retail, um, people that work in, in a shop where they've got to deal with members of the public who are complaining about things. I just, I just couldn't No, No, that's not for me. Yeah. I, I, I just get, to, I just get too exasperated. The thought of, of somebody coming in and wanting to argue about something and, and taking it out on me, I, I don't have time for that, so no. <laughs> I'd resign on, on day one. Yeah, having done that in the past, I totally get what you're saying. Yeah. When I was when I was uh, when I was in my teens, I did um, just a like a summer job to get money. I did like um, I was a waiter in like my local 
pub restaurant and i actually i actually hated that <laughs> um yeah, i'm not i like to meet people who i know are going to want to have a conversation i don't i'm not particularly good i think with just kind of making small talk with with, with people yeah, yeah that is hard i find that difficult yeah it's a gift that some people have yeah i'm trying i'm trying to get get, get better i think that's probably when my anxiety kicks in when, when i feel i'm i'm scrambling for something to say if heaven exists what would you like to hear god say when you arrive at the pearly gates you made things better you helped that's that would mean a lot to think that hopefully through the work that we've done like people's some individuals lives and people that i don't even know about have have found confidence and have been able to be themselves or that that would mean a lot so yeah you've helped my final question is this i like to ask the guest to direct their answer to a 12 or 13 year old child who is coming to terms with their own sexuality what's that one thing you could tell them that you think could help them it's something i yeah i kind of think think about this a bit more recently because it's this idea of taking ownership of who you are like everyone's coming out journey is different and complicated and i would never kind of put you know the worst thing you could ever do is put pressure on somebody to come out uh, because they're and tom tom bosworth speaks speaks about this really really well you know you need all those different building blocks those pillars in your life to kind of fall into place to give you the platform to come out um but i i felt like i didn't have I didn't have those in my life when I was 12, 13, or when I, at that time when I was coming to terms with, with who I was. Um, so the, I think the most important thing is to, is to just to f- try to find any way that allows you to take ownership of who you are so that you're, you're not constantly in fear that it will be used against you. Well, John, this wraps up season one, and I'm so thankful that you came on. Uh, it's been, I've been really looking forward to it, and it's fabulous to chat to you and I'm looking forward to when you come over to the UK and we, we can meet in person I, I just want to take this opportunity as well just to congratulate you um, and thank you for all the hard work that you've put into this season and that I'm I'm in awe of all the different episodes that you've been able to produce and uh, with, with people across the world different sports um, and it's been great to sort of see the podcast grow Um, And I'm looking forward to as many future episodes. So congratulations to you. Well, thank you so much.